what I'm doing is I'm carrying on a Czech tradition that's almost 400 years old in a very small town. Each generation, as they improve on methods and materials and workmanship, they not only, in many cases, learn from the past, sometimes things are lost, but they develop standards of workmanship and they develop a pride in who they are and a sense of place. And what makes shipbuilding important to me is not the fact that I'm an 11th generation, but that I'm carrying on an ancient tradition in an area, in a place where it's happened for many generations. And many of my friends are just as closely tied to the shipbuilding tradition as I am, and that they feel a sense of pride in what I do, and they feel a connection to what I do. And when we launch a boat here in this town, where it's happened for so many years that so many people can feel connected to that launching and come down and share in that experience. So it's part of the culture to me. That was 2012 National Heritage Fellow and Master Shipbuilder Harold Burnham. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. The National Heritage Award is the highest honor the country gives to folk and traditional artists. As Liz Eau Claire here at the NEA noted, at its heart, the folk and traditional arts are rooted in the cultural practices of a particular community. Whether it's Texas Tejano music, the gospel music of Tidewater, Virginia, or the boat building traditions of coastal Massachusetts. As we just heard, Harold Burnham is deeply committed to the tradition of boat building, begun and refined in his hometown of Essex, Massachusetts. He's built six wooden ships, averaging 50 tons each. These aren't fancy yachts, but workboats made with sawn frames, heavy timber, and fastened together with wood. There are a number of things that stand out about Harold. First, he works and lives on the land that has housed his family's shipyard for generations. Second, Harold is involved in every aspect of the creation of his boats. He not only designs and builds them, he also mills the wood and sews the sails. Third, Harold invites the community in to help him build the boats. The response from the Essex community was so overwhelming that Harold managed to build a schooner for himself, the Ardell, without any paid labor. Everyone who helped work on that boat was a volunteer. And when the Ardell was launched from Harold Burnham's boatyard on the Essex River, over 2,000 people were there to see it. This in a town that numbers 3,500. I was lucky enough to go to Essex, where I sailed on the Ardell, an amazing feat of design and craft. I then visited with Harold in a shipyard and workshop, built on land that supported 11 generations of Burnhams. Because we spoke in the open workshop and in the old farmhouse, you'll occasionally hear the noise of boats on the river, wind through the trees, and the call of birds as they begin their flight south for the winter, as well as the more prosaic sound of the occasional truck. Although Harold Burnham comes from a tradition of shipbuilding, it's still an unusual career choice to make 50-ton wooden boats in the 21st century. Most people would have settled for building a small sailboat on weekends in their backyard. So over coffee and apple cider donuts, I asked Harold how he came to his decision to make a career out of boat building. For whatever reason, you don't know what 
what's going to take you into different places in your life. But from the time that I was a very small boy, I was fascinated by boats and boat building and boating. And probably some of the earliest books that I read were books on um, Gloucester and Gloucester fishing schooners. And there's a lot of little short stories. I think I probably read Fast and Able as soon as I could sit up by uh, Gordon Thomas. And I remember reading that, and I don't know how old I was, maybe just, just after I started to read. And even before that, my, my father built boats out in the yard, and I was just always fascinated by boats. So I don't think I really ever had to make a conscious decision to be a boat builder. The real trick has been, uh, in this day and age, is not making a decision to be a boat builder, but you know, trying to find someone who wants boats built and built in the traditional way. That's the real challenge. The real trick is when you when the thing that you do doesn't exist anymore, and how how is it that you go about doing it anyway? And it was interesting because you know I built six boats so far, and when I was young, I was hoping someday to build a boat. I got that over with pretty early, but really it's a miracle that I've been able to build six, and it and it says a lot for, for the people who trusted me to do that. And, you know, starting with, you know, Tom Ellis was the first one to hire me to build a boat, but then Mike Rudstein and the other people, and I feel very fortunate that I've been able to build any. Well, Essex is known historically for shipbuilding. Can you just talk a little bit about that history? The history is really well documented by my friend Dana Story in his many books on shipbuilding. But basically, the town got known as a shipbuilding center early on. In the middle of the 19th century, as Gloucester became a center for fishing, Essex, with its proficiency for building vessels, uh, supplied more and more of the vessels for the Gloucester fleet. And by the middle middle of the 19th century, as Gloucester's fleet was really growing, Essex was, was providing a larger and larger percentage of the fleet. Over time, it's pretty apparent that the standard for American fishing schooners and American fishing vessel construction began to be set in Essex. And that's really what makes Essex unique was not only that it built this huge number of ships, but that the standards for construction were set here. The first boat you built, you built in the public shipyard in Essex. Is that is that true? The first boat I built from scratch was a Sloop Kim, a 22-foot. When I built that boat, you know, I was just out of college, I think, when I started it. I, I did it kind of between trips in, in the Merchant Marine. It was a lot of fun, and um, it took two years to build it, and, and uh, you know, I was growing a lot while I was building it and learning a lot, but I remember uh, my friend Brad used to close his door and board up the inside so people couldn't uh, get into his shop and bother him. People would crawl through the windows and, you know, work their way around the barricades that he'd put up. And when I was building the Kim, I remember doing the same thing. I would just try and barricade myself into the building so that I could work in peace. After a while, I realized that if rather than trying to keep everybody out, I always had something for them to do. Even if they came down, that I'd get something out of them as well as 
having them talk to me while I tried to work. And I realized that everybody, when they came down, they got something out of helping me out, a little bit of chat and, you know, helping me work on the boat. And, you know, I don't know how I came to realize that, but I didn't realize that that was the case. And that has really been the interesting thing. And I realized, you know, you have to kind of examine what you're doing and why you're doing it. And, and the thing about allowing people to work on the boats with you and, you, you build these things and, and you know people like it, you like it, other people like it. Sharing that experience really has, in the long run, been what allowed me to, to have the career I had. You know, of all the boats I built, you know, when you look at the Lannan and the story and the fame, and if you talk to the different owners, it's that uh, community spirit that finished those boats. It wasn't just myself or the owners or the boat. It was this whole spirit of community, that people coming together to help you do in what many people might look at as the impossible, to pull this thing together and get it done, and having the right people show up at the right time with the right skills. And so it was interesting, in the, in the Kim it was just a small boat, but the lessons were huge. Well, there are two boats in particular I really want to talk to you about, and one is the first schooner that you built, which is the um, Thomas Lanham. Take me through that process. How did that happen? Tom Ellis um, is a wicked character, really interesting guy, man of great character. You know, I started that project in, as friends and finished it as very, very, very close friends. And, you know, when you look at what was at stake in that project and how hard we were working, the fact that we finished it as very, very close friends says a lot about both of us. But uh, when I first got hired to, to build the land, and I wasn't the designer. There was another designer that was supposed to do the lines, and, but I wound up becoming the designer of the boat as well. Tom's kind of a bold guy, and uh, admittedly, I was terrified because I just didn't know what kind of a mess Tom was going to throw me into, and I tried to refuse the job a little bit, and Tom just wasn't going to take no for an answer, and he told me that he'd known me his whole life, and knew that I always wanted to do that and to build a schooner and I could either take more than my shop rate to build him his schooner or watch somebody else take the money and, and uh, do a worse job of it than me. <laughs> Given that alternative. Yeah, that was, uh, that was the first time I tried to get fired. There were two other times, but Tom basically wouldn't take no for an answer. And how, the, big, how big was the schooner? What size are we talking about? It was a little more than 50 tons. Pretty good-sized boat. To say it was a leap of faith on Tom's part would be uh, an understatement. Had you ever designed a boat? I wasn't hired to design the Lannan. I was hired to build it. And uh, Tom had a set of drawings that were done by a mutual friend. and I tried to make those drawings work as best I could. And, and then uh, after a few weeks of thinking about it, I flat out refused to build the boat and uh, thought I'd get fired again and Tom said uh, you really think the design is that bad and I said yeah and uh, he told me he talked to naval architects and captains and engineers and all these people and they all thought it was great and he said and asked me again you really don't like this and I said no and he said well I hired you to build the boat build me anything you want <laughs> and Left the office that day, not fired, but promoted to designer, slightly more terrified. <laughs> How 
How did you design this boat, Harold? You had never designed anything like it. Go through the process. Did you research schooners? How did you do it? I called through every boat that I could look at from the time I was a kid, and my father also had a real interest in how things were done and the old ways of how you did things. And um, when you read about schooner design, they talk about the lines and the design. And so if you read a lot of Essex history and you, you think about the lines as being this important thing and the shape of the boat, and as you build more stuff and as you think about things and as you get a little more time and experience under your belt, you realize the lines are only a small part of the design. The design of a fishing schooner was something that was worked out over an extremely long period of time. And things like how you build it, what the shapes of the frames are, and how the wood fits together, and the construction, the way the pieces of wood fit, and the way it's cut, and how it's fastened, and the size of all the different pieces of wood and the scantling. That's all important to the design, and then the, how the cabin's built and how the bulwarks are planked and what the bow looks like and the rig and all of that you know when a designer designed a boat in the 19th century they just drew up the lines and sent it to the builder and the builder did all of that and so even the boats in Essex that were built that were designed by other people the reality is a great deal of the design fell onto the shoulders of the builder who was responsible for making something that floated and would carry everybody back. And I didn't even realize that that, that was part of the design. I had to figure out, you know, that was my job as builder to figure out all those things. And so when I started doing the land and the first thing I was doing was figuring out all those other details. And when it got time to, to do the lines and I didn't like the lines that we currently had to work with and um, didn't like the vessel itself, to take that extra step to do the actual draw the lines of the boat and come up with the shape of the hull was really a small process comparatively and, and an easy step. You know, once you've figured out how you're going to build something, that, that's the key. And one of the things when I, when I look at the land and sailing in it, I was looking at it this summer from the Ardell. I said to a fellow, I said, that is a beautiful boat. And the fellow said, well, doesn't that mean you're a bit conceited? You designed it and built it. And I said, well, if I can take credit for anything, it's only learning the old ways and learning the old techniques and the, the Essex methods. And Because what makes the land in a beautiful boat isn't necessarily my input so much as the fact that I was able to use all the little details which had been worked out over many generations and many years in, in the Essex yards. You not only design the boat, you actually mill the wood. Now I do, yeah. And make the sails. Yeah. You're involved in every aspect of it. Yeah. Well, it's funny because the more you work and the more you build and the more you understand, the more all of those pieces all come together. That's what it is to be a master shipwright. It's not someone who just builds or designs or mills wood, or makes sails, or rigs, but someone who will do all of those, and, and then is not afraid to get on the finished product and sail it. There's one step in the process that I'm so entranced by, and that's curving the wood the way you do using a steam box. Can you just describe that? 
Oh, yeah. Well, steam in the wood. Everyone loves to hear about bend in the wood. That's one of the things. No, you don't have to be sorry. That's the mock comment usually that uh, all my friends say when they come down to the dock is, how do you bend the wood? (laughs) (laughs) It's terrible uh, being predictable. And um, Yeah, steaming wood is an ancient technique of making it uh, soft and pliable. They do the same thing with the chairs, you know, they'll bend the backs of chairs. But with a straight grain piece of white oak, you basically heat it up in a steam box and... uh, keep it moist and it's surprising what you can do with it i mean you can you can twist it and bend it and torture it into shapes that are seemingly uh, impossible shapes i know about how far you can push it there have been times when i've designed things that uh, i shouldn't have <laughs> and luckily uh, the oak was forgiving enough to get me through it but it is it is remarkable what you can do with a hot piece of oak and the hotter you get it, the the better she'll go around. I mean, and when it's become really, really important, you know, I'll be feeding the fire myself, and, and it'll roar like a jet engine, and that's about the time that it's ready to come out of the box. How many people worked with you on the Thomas Lyman? Let's talk about paid staff and then volunteers. You know, it's interesting. I, I don't really count paid versus non-paid. Some people that you pay in a fortune aren't really helping out as much as they could and some people you don't pay anything will do the work of three men Um, and so it's really kind of hard to say. But there were paid people for the landing for the Ardell which is the most recent boat you built and that's your boat. It was all volunteer. There was just nobody who was paid. Yeah it was all volunteer. If the Irish building the Ardell again my guess is that that boat would be somewhere between six and eight hundred thousand dollars for somebody else and the cost of it to me was about sixty five thousand so it was around ninety percent donated or volunteer which is remarkable says a lot to the people around in this area what they think of this tradition and what they think of myself personally, but also what they think of, you know, what I was doing and how how much it meant to them to be able to be part of it. What led to the building of the Ardell? I guess more than anything else, what led to the construction of the Ardell was that uh, I hadn't had it, or an order for a new vessel in a long time. Even though I didn't have orders, I, had, I kept cutting wood and collecting logs and stashing away gear and kept getting ready for my next project whatever that would be and I figured if I could keep the door open and have everything available then I was doing everything I could do in my power to to keep building boats and and the rest of it was not in my power and um, as that pile of gear amassed and no orders came in after a while I reached a point where I had to do something different you know, you can either change or die, I guess. And so with all of the, everything there and all the tools and all the equipment, at a certain point, it, it was uh, a matter of, you know, trying to find a little more sustainable way of life. And the only sensible way really out of the boat building business was to build a, build a boat. 
if you can't sustain yourself building boats, you've got to pick a boat to build that'll sustain you. And, and that's what the Ardell was all about, was building a boat that would protect, provide me with a sustainable way of life and future. And until we started cutting the wood, the hope was that someone would walk in the door and save me from myself and hire me to build a boat. Um, and that just didn't happen. And with everything in place and plunging myself into it, it was uh, amazing and uh, inspiring. And also, you know, the, the amount of people that showed up to help out in, in so many different ways. Eventually, the project took on a life of its own. You know, not only did I have to build, keep building it for my own reasons, but I couldn't let anybody down. <laughs> so, so the crew that was showing up to help me build the boat was not only helpful in the sense that they were showing up to help me, but uh, they became a major source of motivation. I mean, I, I couldn't sleep in. I had to be up early before they, uh, before they got there and make sure they all had something to do. And, and it kind of fed upon itself. And there's, there's a lot of times when people say, well, how did you do this? And my answer is, I have no idea <laughs> how I put that boat together. Um, but I know it was not without an incredible amount of support and help from a great many people. And the thought was, Bill Viardell, and then you would use it as a charter boat and as a boat that does public sales in the Gloucester area, around Gloucester, but you go to Provincetown you, and sustain yourself that way. The deal was to build a boat that could you know, support me in many different ways. And certainly uh, chartering out of Gloucester was a great way. And the other thing is, is build a boat with, with the land and chartering out of Gloucester and successful. To have two successful schooners out of Gloucester starts to say a lot about the people around Gloucester and what they're looking for and what they want. And it had been a dream a long time before the Lannan, uh, from the time I started running my first, the Sloop Kim that I built back in 92. I would look at the whale watch boats go by one after another. And, and if you, I knew if you could develop an interest in indigenous traditional craft, then for every whale watch boat with the same demographic, you could have a, a traditional schooner working out of Gloucester. And, in, and if you could do that, then you keep alive the, the skills in shipbuilding to keep building them and also hand on to the people that sail on them the, the same traditions on how to handle these things under sail and how to maneuver them. You know, when we sail the Ardell, we're not the standard turn the motor on, back out a slip, point it into the wind, and pull the sails up, and then turn the motor off, and then, you know, sail around, and then point it into the wind with the motor on, and drop the sails. Uh, it's very important to me to sail it like, like it's a working vessel, and hauling lobster traps, and sailing it in and out of the dock, and handling on the sail is very important to me. I mean, we'll turn the engine on before we crash, but usually just before we crash. <laughs> and, uh, We're in Massachusetts, Shipbuilding happens primarily fall into winter into early spring. Ships are built outside. This is very cold. Yeah. People that work inside have a different expectation of, of the weather. When you work in a weather-dependent industry, you go out and you try, 
And if it gets so bad that you can't make it, you find something else to do. (laughs) (laughs) But the other thing, because you're working outside, it means it's public and people can see you and members of the community know what you're doing. Yeah. And that really helped in some ways to reconnect a community to its history. Yeah. I like to say that in the 40s, the shipbuilding industry in Essex didn't die, but it it sort of went back into the cottage where you couldn't see it. It went away from the waterfront. And if there's one thing that I did that was different, I built the boats on the waterfront where they could be launched right into the river, but also where everybody could see them and watch the progress. And I think that that helped connect the town to its to its roots in a way that you wouldn't have had otherwise. I mean, if they built a shed around the boats and built them inside a shed where nobody could see it and then undid the shed at the end of the job and let everybody look at the finished boat, it would have been different. You used traditional techniques, but not for some nostalgic reason of wanting to recreate, but because you find them superior. Oh, yeah. I mean, how do... We built the Ardell for $65,000. How are you going to do that in fiberglass? You couldn't even buy the glue. Coal molded, can't be done. You can't buy the fastenings if it was screw fastened for that. It was built with sawn frames and trunnels in the old way. And the thing is rugged. You can bash it off rocks and stick it in the mud and do anything you want with it. You aren't going to get it to come apart. And uh, to me, that's the, uh, that's the meaning of good. It's made out of readily available materials, made cheap, and uh, made to last. And uh, the only thing we have to worry about in a wooden boat is keep them painted, keep the worms out of them. Especially a wooden boat that's wooden fastened. Are you seeing interest in the next generation in wooden ships? There's a humongous amount of interest. And it's wonderful. And I teach everybody I can. And I encourage people as much as I can, and as much as it makes sense to. A young person coming to me wanting to learn to make ships, to make a living making ships, is going to get highly discouraged in the same way that I was discouraged. I'll give them everything I can, the shirt off my back, I'll teach them everything I can teach them, but I would feel like I was doing them a disservice if I told them they could make a living at it. The reason I built the Ardell is because I cannot make a living at it, and I've been given everything I can imagine anyone being given. On the other hand, you know, young kid who learns shipbuilding, learns to operate the equipment, learns to look at a tree and see inside of it, learns to cut a sail, how to handle a sail, how to handle a boat, those skills are going to be invaluable to that person throughout their whole life. And those are the skills that I try to pass on. You have received a National Heritage Fellowship Award. How did you find out about this? Barry Bergey called me up and let me know. I was shocked. It was sort of the holy grail that I didn't really expect to get. Especially at your age, in your mid-40s. Yeah, I started really, really young. Everything I've done in my career has pointed towards wooden shipbuilding with the exception I did a little bit of roofing and some awning work when I was in college and uh, even those things were you know like the stars were in alignment. How are you getting to Washington DC? 
Well, the hope is to uh, sail down in the Ardell and, and bring a lot of the building crew that helped help put the boat together with me and, and really uh, celebrate this uh, award with them. And, you know, I, I accept the award, certainly, but a great deal of the award, I, I think of the many, many, many people, my father and people from all walks who've really done everything from contribute a year or two of their lives helping me work on different projects to those who stop by in a pickup truck just to see what's going on and happen to have exactly what I need at that moment in the back of the truck. I mean, I've been very blessed to have had a lot of really great people help me out on the way, and and so I, I feel like I'm sort of accepting it in behalf of all those people. Many, many congratulations, Harold. Well, it's it's a great honor. That was Master Shipwright and 2012 National Heritage Fellow, Harold Burnham. Harold is currently sailing from Essex, Massachusetts to Washington, D.C. on the Ardell. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpts from Out on the Ocean and Rolling Waves by Jennifer Cutting and the Ocean Orchestra. Use courtesy of Jennifer Cutting. You can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, it's another celebration of traditional art, this time gospel music from the Tidewater with 2012 National Heritage Fellows, the Paschal Brothers. And don't forget on Thursday, October 4th, the 2012 National Heritage Fellows perform live at the NEA National Heritage Concert. It's at 7.30 at the Lisner Auditorium in Washington, D.C. And if you can't make it, don't worry, we're webcasting it live. For more information about this free concert and webcast, go to arts.gov and click on National Heritage Fellowships. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.